I really believed in him. And more importantly, when you try ideas that haven't been tried before, like I said, you have to recognize they don't always go. And eventually he'll get it. Hey everyone, I'm Mark Randolph and welcome to That Will Never Work. On this podcast, I speak with folks who are at every stage of building their own business, whether they're leaping from side hustle to self-employed or are already generating revenue and ready to level up. My goal is to draw out their biggest challenges and then, using a combination of advice, encouragement, and tough love, nudge them just a little closer to realizing their dreams. While I'm known for co-founding Netflix and serving as its first CEO, my career as an entrepreneur spans four decades. Netflix was actually my fifth startup, and since leaving there, I've had the opportunity to work with scores of early-stage companies and mentor aspiring entrepreneurs from all over the world. Along the way, I've picked up hundreds of tips, tricks, and secrets, which I'm eager to share with my listeners. Helping others move their ideas forward has become my life's passion. So if you've been told that will never work as much as I have, you've come to the right place. Together, we'll prove the naysayers wrong. When we launched Netflix in 1998, it took us more than a year and a half and hundreds of failed experiments to finally come up with a business model that worked. It wasn't all skill. It wasn't just luck. It was persistence. And today's guest, Bill, is living proof of why I think persistence is probably the most underrated attribute for an entrepreneur. Bill's a youth hockey coach out of Salt Lake, so he knows firsthand what it's like to have been knocked down a few times. He's built an app to help teams stay in compliance with league regulations. But he's having trouble finding traction. When you hear about entrepreneurs these days, you hear about the savvy pitch or the overnight success. But as you'll hear in today's episode, the practice of trial and error, and yes, persistence, is as essential and as fascinating as any topic we face. In our conversation, we discuss everything Bill's learned from his first few attempts and how he might move forward from there. Let's listen in. Bill, welcome to That Will Never Work. I'm really excited to have you with us today, actually, because it might even be a subject that I understand something about. But rather than keeping it a mystery, why don't you start off by maybe quickly introducing yourself. Tell me what problem you're trying to solve, how you're trying to solve it, and then we can uh, dig in a little bit. Cool. Thanks so much, Mark. And thanks so much for having me on. I've read your book. I've listened to you on Clubhouse, and I've listened to every one of your podcasts. So I guess I'm sort of a super fan, and uh, thank you so much for what you do and having me here. So My pleasure. So by day, I'm a serial entrepreneur, and by night, I'm a youth hockey coach. And four years ago, I started working on what I think is the biggest problem in youth and amateur sports, and that's that today, seven out of 10 kids quit sports by the time they're 13. So just as kids are becoming teenagers and really need the structure and stability and the kind of positive community that sports can create, they quit. So I decided I'd look into why. Well, the number one predictor, as it turns out, of a kid's success in youth and amateur sports is the coach-athlete relationship. But finding the right coach for your kid is completely random. You just go with what the neighbors say or which teams the friends play on, and then you just accept it. And so I tested that premise with youth and amateur sports parents by asking a simple two-question survey. 
Question one, have you ever Googled your kid's coach? Question two, have you ever Googled where to go to lunch? Not a single parent had Googled their kid's coach. Everyone had Googled where to go to lunch. So if the consumer, who's the parent in this case, doesn't care enough to at least Google the product, it's no wonder 70% of them don't get what they like, get what they thought they'd get. So I dug deeper into this, and it turns out that most parents just thought someone else had done it. Someone else had vetted the coach. Someone else had made sure that this was the right fit for their kid. And that someone else was usually a volunteer in an organization with a ton of work to do. Hold on a second. Back up a minute, Bill. I'll be a parent here and say, cool. I didn't even realize you were allowed to choose Certainly, I'm thinking about like the little leagues that my kids played in. It isn't like they could say, oh, I want to be on the Giants or, or I want to be on the Yankees instead. It was more or less this random assignment of kids to teams, and the yeah. team came with a coach. So Absolutely. I think it would have felt a little weird, pushy to go, right. uh, we want a different coach. We don't like this coach. Is it common that you can actually change coaches? In the world I grew up in, exactly the same as what you're describing. But that was before youth and amateur sports became a $14 billion business. Today, even in Salt Lake City, I coach ice hockey here, and you have five or six different clubs with totally different philosophies and different options to go and play. And we're not in Massachusetts. We're not in Minnesota. We're not in any hockey hotbed. This is podunk country, but you have lots of options today because frankly, there's a lot of money in it and there are a lot of clubs that have sprung up. So you do have choices today. Maybe for your first coach or your second coach, yeah, just take the system as it goes. But very quickly, it accelerates into your kid is being invited to play on a travel team or a comp team or a tier team. You go quickly from a few hundred dollars to a few thousand to 10,000, and that happens really fast. With a lack of transparency and a lack of accountability, I thought that if we could shine a bright light on that and open it up, particularly once you get to the travel tier comp level of sports, which is what we focused on, that creating a way to make sure that everybody is a well-qualified adult and we can understand who's spending time with our kids, we could really do some social good. That was our thinking. So Mr. Serial Entrepreneur, what was the approach you took to try and solve that problem? Great question. Well, the first approach didn't work. We thought that <laughs> if, if we made a LinkedIn for coaches and we built a network and coaches could access other coaches and they could post all their credentials and we gave them a place to do this, that they'd flock to do it. Nobody cared. Nobody wanted to use it. We had signups and then almost no one used it. So the second approach is we went to it being sports and sports marketing. You can't introduce a baseball glove in Little League and hope that the pros get on board. It has to go the other way. It has to go top down. So I went to the U.S. ski team, so U.S. Ski and Snowboard, which is the national governing body of skiing. And I said, hey, we want to do this pilot program with you and essentially prove our concept at a high level. And what we're going to do is 
We've created a product for your organization that makes it easy, fast, and affordable to make sure that every coach, trainer, official volunteer is safe sport trained, which is anti-abuse training, background checked, CDC heads up concussion certified, and a bunch of other things. We'll make it really easy to do best practices. So they said, sure, we'll do a pilot with you guys. We did a pilot. The women's national alpine team used us and their annual rookie camp used us. And it was semi-successful. And they came back to us and said, you know, we're really not interested in best practices because quite frankly, we are best practices already. You know, we do a great job. We're one of the leading national governing bodies in the whole world. If you could go away and figure out compliance, maybe we'd be interested. And I said, well, that's what we built. This is a compliance product. So you're right. It's not best practices. It's a compliance management solution. So we went back to them with that and said, this is what we'd like to do. We'd like to replace your Excel spreadsheets and Google Sheets and all the emails that you use in order to aggregate all this information. And here's the software. They decided not to use us. So we took that lesson and then we went to another national governing body, USA Hockey, and said, hey, we can help you make sure that all the coaches are vetted and certified and we can do it cheaply. And so we signed an agreement with them to be the official athlete safety software solution. By now, we're at the end of 2019 and then COVID hit and basically shut down sports. And I thought, well, okay, whatever coming out of COVID is going to be, it's going to be compliance again. And we've built a compliance engine that works. So let's roll out sort of a lightweight version, a lightweight app, and we'll call it Clear to Play. And we'll address the problem at hand. And so we did that on June 1st of 2020. We rolled out Clear to Play. And I was ill-informed and misguided, and I thought that COVID would be a short-lived problem and that we'd probably get it done by the fall of 2020. And so I offered the product for free. And I thought, what we'll do is we'll get a bunch of customers in the door and we'll have the opportunity to upsell them into our complete management solution. That worked. We got too popular. And since we had built the product really quickly, it wouldn't scale. It timed out and we had all sorts of technical problems. We took a few months, more than a few months to fix everything and make a product that would scale. And by then, now we're into 2021, nobody really cared. And so we've pivoted over and over again. The attrition rate on everybody's motivation has been considerable. And obviously we've been burning through money. So we've raised money, we have revenues, we've pivoted a number of times, and we've come to a fork in the road where we don't quite know what's happening with COVID. And so this is a really, really long introduction, I think, for you. But my question to you is, what would you do? I think I needed the introduction. Listen, as a regular listener of the podcast, this will be different because usually I jump all over somebody in the first three or four minutes because I kind of get what the lesson could be here. But actually, you've done a lot of things right. And I think it's probably very helpful. I've certainly done a lot of things. <laughs> well, the searching and the pivoting is the right thing to do. And 
I think it's really interesting for people to hear what an entrepreneur really does, which is they don't have this idea, wow, we had this great idea about no one was vetting their coaches and boom, there it went. And my problem now is I'm overrun. No, the first idea sucked and uh, it didn't work. And rather than keeping on beating that horse, you said, okay, let's try something different. And by colliding it, you actually found out different markets. You said, no, I've got to go top down. I'm the governing body. So I think people hearing that will have gotten some realism into what entrepreneurship is all about. And the other thing that I'm glad we got to this point is they're getting the realism that sometimes things don't go your way and you're kind of going, I'm trying to decide whether to call it a day or not. And I think that is way, way more common than people imagine. So it's kind of good I think, for people to hear from someone who's right in the middle of trying to figure that out. One of the things as I was listening to the story, I was struck by is there's large elements here of one of my favorite flaws, which is there's a little bit of an idea looking for a problem, especially once you have this piece of software which does compliance and you're going, oh shit, now I've got to go find someone who has a problem that I can use this company to solve. And occasionally you get it right doing that. But more frequently than not, that's a very, very frustrating exercise because usually the solution that you've built doesn't match up very neatly with the problem people have. Yeah. So, you know, I, I've left out a key element of the story, I realize. And the element is this. In 2017, the federal government passed a law called the Safe Sport Act of 2017 that necessitated that every single starting with the Olympic movement. So those 50 sports in the Olympic movement, they all have to do this. The piece that I didn't really investigate well enough is what happens if they don't. So it becomes law in 2017, starts being enforced in theory in 2018, but not really until 2019. And they don't really do it. And nobody really gets shut down or fined if they don't do it is what's happened. Let's dig into that problem for just a second. Every coach all the way down to peewee or whatever it's called when you're five years old is required by law to have all that safe sport training? Yes. And the law actually also created the U.S. Center for Safe Sport in Denver. It's a large nonprofit that is tasked with educating implementing this and also enforcing it, particularly sexual abuse. When sexual abuse happens in an Olympic sport, the reports go to the U.S. Center for Safe Sport and they have investigators. And so it's a serious deal. It's a real deal. And they do a great job. They're overwhelmed. Unfortunately, tragically, they're overwhelmed with cases, which is just terrible. But that was the key piece of the story that I left out. So that was why I thought that every organization would have this problem and have to deal with it. It's surprising to me that the U.S. women's ski team, they don't have responsibility for high school ski coaches, do they? U.S. Ski and Snowboard is the governing body for all ski sports. But they're not responsible. If my junior high school ski team coach doesn't comply with safe sport, the issues don't roll up to them, does it? Are they held responsible for that, for not having all of their coaches in compliance? High school is a bit of a different animal, but the short answer is not exactly. But if your kid is a ski racer at Squaw Valley Ski Club, right. Ski Club Vale, Aspen Ski Club, yep, yep. and 
that's the track, by the way, to the U.S. ski team, right? So right. that rolls directly up to the national governing body. So yes, they are completely responsible for training every single one of their member coaches and everybody who competes in North American competitions and FIS and World Cup and all of those meaningful ski racing competitions must be a member of U.S. Ski and Snowboard in order to compete. Interesting. And the same with ice hockey, the same with most sports. There's two things that we can talk about. One is, do you keep going or not? And then uh, what I'm also thinking about is if you decide to keep going, where do you go? Or how do we understand a bit better about what's happening? And I can't help it. I'm going to go that direction first. Then we can come back to the, how do you make this decision of whether to keep going or not? If you think about the problem, it's not necessarily the U.S. ski team's problem that all of the other coaches in the country aren't in compliance. Maybe at some technical level, they sort of are, but I don't believe if you make the list of what are the top 50 things that the person who runs the U.S. women's ski team is thinking about, maybe are all of my junior high school club teams in compliance is probably down at about 47 or 48th on the list. Because for them, they have only a handful of coaches they worry about, and they know already they're all in compliance because these are all senior people. Like you said, there just aren't that many. The pyramid, when you start up at the Olympic level, it's not hugely broad until you get down four or five layers, meaning this is not a big, big, big problem at the top. So while I understand that if it gets used at the top, it will trickle down and get used at the bottom, it's not going to get used at the top unless it's a big problem at the top. I am going somewhere with this. What happened when you made your product free? Lo and behold, all this friction went away. And obviously, as the price goes down, as the load of engaging with a product goes down, the size problem it needs to solve goes down too. Now I'm going to tie in a third thread was this original idea of yours was LinkedIn. And if you think about it, one of the beautiful things about LinkedIn is it's free. It's free to who the apparent users are. And the apparent users of LinkedIn are all of us who are all happily putting in all the intimate details of who we worked and who we're connected to. That's not necessarily a big problem, but because it's free, I'm happy to do it. And there's some little marginal utility in doing it. But as the saying goes, if you're using a social media product and you can't figure out who the product really is, well, the product is you. And of course, that's exactly how LinkedIn works. And the people who pay for LinkedIn are by and large recruiters who are using this beautiful database of immaculately accurate data, where people worked, who they worked, or what their job responsibilities were, and they're using it as a recruiting tools, and they're paying for the nose to do that. And it makes LinkedIn very, very, very successful. So those three threads coming together, even though it's 47th on the list of the U.S. ski team's problem, they are looking to provide value um, and they would promote something to their membership provided they didn't need to pay much for it or pay for it at all, or their membership didn't need to pay for it. The utility of being able to go out to every, and listen, skiing is a bad one, but let's yeah. use Little League. Sure to every single little league, every club, and having some level of compliance management that's easy, simple, and free is powerful. Potentially could allow you to see some penetration. And so then of course you go, what's the point of that? I'm just gonna go broke giving this thing away. 
Maybe the pivot here is you recognize there's some other value in having this thing widely distributed and widely used, which is that eventually you do have this database of every single baseball coach. Yeah. I mean, the underlying idea was what if we had a public facing national database of every coach, trainer, official who spent time with kids? Yeah, I think your idea is wonderful, except that how much money do you think LinkedIn spent to get to that place where they could start selling to recruiters or start actually generating any revenues? So I don't know the answer, but of course, very little because they weren't paying to acquire that data. It was a viral growth. Obviously, there has to be some element of how this gets penetration. If you eventually have your marketing department and you have your sales department, they're not necessarily marketing to coaches and marketing to parents and marketing to organizations. You're selling to the people who want to buy the data and you have to have designed something which is organically spreading through the organization. Or the way that you envisioned it is not a bad idea, which is that you sell it once to the, the national governing board for Little League Baseball, who makes it available, who's delighted to have something of value they can provide to the membership that the membership actually uses and enjoys that doesn't cost them anything to do or costs them a very de minimis amount because your business model is not dependent on convincing them to pay for this, nor is it them having to convince their membership to pay for it. In other words, it's not a SaaS product that you're getting the people using it because thinking about- That's what we were trying to do. We we're trying to build the SaaS product. Yeah, I understand that. But it was from the story was first starting, my initial feeling was about coach vetting. Problem with that is you don't do it very often. If, for example, you had built the Google for people Googling restaurants and said, I've built this great product for you to Google, make it easier to Google Vito's Italian restaurant on Main Street. Not a lot of economic value there because they use it once and never use it again. But it, no, those apps are used multiple times a week because they allow you to vet many, 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 many things. Many restaurants, travel, hotels, and people do that enough frequently enough. But it's also free. <laughs> <laughs> right. So there's an interesting model here. It's just that especially that one, you have to have something which has perpetual utility. And I think that's how to put this business model together is this is something which coaches use or organizations use that has perpetual utility for them. Either it's managing compliance of a number of things for their teams, which they then put the pressure on the teams to please make sure this is filled out. Because if it's not filled out, you're not going to be able to participate. Or the coaches say, you have to have all your players in, otherwise they're not going to be able to take the field. There's some mechanism here that all this happens, but it doesn't require them to pay for it because it's just as easy for them to have, I'll have parents do it in a spreadsheet, but this will work better, et cetera. As long as you've now figured out some other way to monetize it, it's hard for me to believe that if you have this way of reaching every coach and or every player, there's not some very, very powerful economic model to be had if you can get to that point. But we're back in this game of doing the fun thing that two entrepreneurs like to do when they sit down together and just brainstorm how all the cool ways to do it. But let's spend the last few minutes here at least talking about the problem at hand. Um, and I usually find that most entrepreneurs don't ever really stop unless someone forces them to stop. Uh, there's always something new to be tried. Right. But what does happen, 
and I have seen this happen, is you lose the passion for it because you start getting burned out on having gone, this is going to go past anybody who's younger than 35. It's like Lucy and holding the football uh, for Charlie Brown. He's run up to it and she pulls it away every single time. But each time he goes, no, I'm not going to do that. She goes, no, I promise this time I won't pull the ball away. Right. And it's only yeah. so many times you can go running up to that football before you go, ah, I don't think I have it in me anymore. That's why I would not begrudge you for a minute to go, I've run out of steam for this idea. I don't have a chip on my shoulder that I have to make this work. Have you raised money from other people? Yeah. Yeah. So there's some sense. Yeah. I have a very strong sense of wanting to get this done for them. It's a friends and family round with two small funds involved, but it's a significant amount of money that we've raised. And I don't want to let those people down. Yeah, I feel that too. That's always this pressure is that you want to try and pay back some of the faith people put in you to make this happen. The professional investors, I'm less worried about the right. small funds. They have bets all over the table. I don't know who they are, but most likely they do. You're just one of yeah, 20 investments do. out of this fund. They know going in that only one or two of the fund are going to hit it. It's the friends and family ones that hurt. And in some ways, though, the friends and family forgive you too, because they were investing in you, not necessarily on the expectation that they would make a fortune out of it. Yeah, but doesn't that make it harder in your experience? They're investing in me. So it's not so much that the product failed, it's that I failed. Yeah, I've been there and I've felt that. But I also know now that I am on the other side of it where I do a bunch of friends and family stuff. I know that the reason I'm making the investment is because I want to give someone a shot at it. I don't subject them to the same level of due diligence that I would a more mature company. In other words, I'm saying don't be overly hard on yourself, that people wanted to give you the shot at this. They wanted to see if you could do it or not. And the reality is sometimes these things happen that have nothing to do with you. If we had another hour and a half, we could go through the more detailed discussion and I could help tell them whether this, in fact, did have something to do with you. But I'll give you the benefit <laughs> of the doubt. Listen, sometimes things break your way and sometimes they don't. What would I do? The only honest answer I can give you is I'd keep going is because I'm just driven by it. I would lay everybody off. I'd cut, the burn, I'd cut the Done burn that. down to just you, you know, essentially. Done that. I would try a couple more times to see if I could get something to click. And then I'd go, it's just not going to happen with where I am right now. I don't feel strong enough I can raise more money on this. I don't feel strong enough that I can continue to put my full-time efforts in this much longer. I would have done the things you did, which is said, I'm going to bring the burn to zero or as close to zero where it's just me. And I'm going to go back to where I was almost at the beginning. But this time I've got a good code base here. Yeah, we built it. And then the last piece you can try is you can try and do some sort of safe landing for the code and see if you can at least return some dimes on the dollar to people by finding someone else who has an existing business that they could layer some really great compliance software onto. When you have the circumstance that you have, which is you have some funds in and you have friends and family in, the motivations differ somewhat. For the people with the fund, you returning pennies or dimes or nickels in the dollar to them means nothing to them. It's just almost no internal rate of return, so it's the same as nothing. When someone has scraped together $20,000 and they're not a professional investor, returning the uh, pennies and the dollar to them can sometimes make you feel a lot better. It is meaningful to say, I couldn't make it work this time, but I did put in some effort to sell some asset here.
And I'll tell you one other thing is that I have, I'm on one of my entrepreneurs third shot at it. And I still back him, even though he lost my money the first two times, because I, A, really loved having the front row seat. B, I really believed in him. And more importantly, when you try ideas that haven't been tried before, like I said, you have to recognize they don't always go and eventually he'll get it. And uh, you've already done it a couple of times and you're going to do it again. Yeah, that's probably true. And I do think that your idea of offering it for free, I have a pretty strong sense that that will actually work. I'm not positive I can get there from here, but it may be possible because that is the friction. If you went back to, first of all, be really sensitive what level of organization you go to and what it can do for their pyramid below them. Right. Because you want someone who's not just going to go, oh, I have 12 coaches in my network. I'll give it to all. That's not what you want. Right. You want a cascading pyramid because what you're looking for is not to make money on this one sport at this one level. You want to go to Greater Salt Lake Little League Baseball and see whether it goes out to the four different leagues, to the 50 different coaches, and how well that does. That's what you're looking for, is that organic spread and usage for free. And then you and I will talk and we'll talk about how, what opportunities you have to monetize that, uh, what the values are there and how that multiplied by every single little league in the country times every sport that could be applicable for it. Then you begin to have something. Yeah, that's smart. And that might give you the hint that you want to go back to it. Should have called you earlier. <laughs> <laughs> no, what you're going to say in about two years when all of a sudden this thing is going crazy is, oh my God, I called Mark at just the right moment. Or- that would be nice. Well, this, yeah. Bill, this has actually been a really interesting conversation because this is not a discussion that I get to have very often and that people get to listen to very often. And this is the shit they don't teach in business school and you don't do this in your accelerators. So it's a valuable thing. So- well, and one last little quest for you. As you know, I am going to want to follow up with you in uh, enough months to see what direction it goes because this is one that I'm really curious, A, what you decide, and if you do decide to take a couple more shots at it, whether any of them worked. Well, Mark, I remain a super fan. I think that was really smart. <laughs> Thank you. Great. My pleasure, Bill. Listen, best of luck. More than most of my conversations today, I got to go deep into what being an entrepreneur is really like. That struggle to keep going, to keep trying different ideas, to keep searching for something that actually might work. In Bill's case, that solution might be a freemium model or perhaps an entirely different entry point. In either case, I look forward to speaking with him again in a few months, seeing whether he chose to stick with it. And if so, finding out how he made it work. Well, that's all for today. And thanks to my guests for entrusting their business to me for a little while. I look forward to hearing back from them in a few months to see if my advice helped. In the meantime, if you want to be a guest on That Will Never Work, I've made it really easy. Just go to markrandolph.com forward slash guest. Fill out the form and leave a voice message right there on the site. While you're there, sign up to get my weekly entrepreneurial advice delivered right to your inbox. Or connect with me on Twitter at mbrandolph or on Instagram at thatwillneverwork. Or my newest attempt at denying my age on TikTok, where I promise you won't ever find me dancing without a shirt on. Thanks again for listening. 
Don't forget to smash that like button and leave me a review at Apple Podcasts. I'll see you next time. Audiation.